Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest today is writer David Quammen. He's the author of several books, including the prescient spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Pandemic, which was published in 2012. And the New York Times recently published an article titled, Animals that Infect Humans Are Scary, It's Worse When We Infect Them Back. The Times reports that mink farms, some of them in Utah, threat to become a source of new coronavirus variants. And an object lesson how spillback can make deadly diseases even deadlier. Today we'll uh, welcome David Quammen to talk about spillover, spillback, the coronavirus, future viruses, and related topics. Uh, David Quammen, uh, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much. Hi, Tom. It's good to be back with you. Nice to talk with you. How are things in Montana? Uh, things are well here. It's snowing right now, which is ah. good. We're glad to see that, or at least it was a minute ago when I walked the dogs. Um, and uh, otherwise, quiet. I've been in my I'm in my office here for the, most of the last two years. I haven't left the state of Montana since March of 2020. And I understand uh, in one of your bios, you've uh, you talked about a python named Boots. Do you still have uh, Boots? <laughs> yeah, Boots is right here in the in the office with me. Say hi, Boots. <laughs> Uh, he's pretty quiet. Very, very good. Well, well, we'll we'll take that as 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 a high from Boots. Um, yeah. I, I want to start with we want to talk about spillover, spillback, uh, a lot of the different um, you know aspects here. But I want to start with I think a lo- what a lot of us are wondering is we're all very weary here. You know, heading into two mm, and a half yeah. years of this uh, pandemic. Uh, how how does it end, and and what does end mean? Oh. A good question and one that's uh, not easy to answer. Uh, how does it end? First of all, um, I guess I should start by saying how it probably doesn't end. We're not going to be rid of this virus. This virus is not going away. We're not going to get it out of the human population ever, most likely. And if we did get it out of the human population, and this goes back to your subject of spillback, um, if we did get it out of the human population, we know that it's now... Um, lurking in animal populations in various different places, various different species of animals. And so if we did, we could get reinfected from them. Uh, But we have these wonderful vaccines that have been developed in record time that are helping enormously, and we have some good antiviral drugs that are coming along now. So we will be able to suppress and contain this virus uh, over the long term. And I suspect, based on my conversations with virologists, that it will become something that flares up sporadically in small localized populations where there's a high uh, density of people who are still susceptible, either because they haven't been vaccinated or because they've never been infected. So so there'll be a little spot fires of probably of COVID-19 infection. And, it, and that does not mean that it'll evolve toward being harmless, sort of being just like the common cold. Some people think that, but there is no inevitability about that. It may uh, rise up in these little um, spot fires and still kill people over the long term. So 40 years from now, I mm-hmm. think children will be vaccinated against this virus still, maybe in a combined vaccine with other coronaviruses covered. Uh, still potentially deadly, then, you, th- you think? Uh, need, we'll need that it, protection. It, there is no inevitability that it will not still be deadly. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it's very hard to predict because most of the, yeah, this is Darwin 101. Yeah. Viruses evolve. Viruses are subject to Darwinian natural selection. Um, and they adapt. Um, and this one has adapted to being very, very transmissible and transmissible from asymptomatic people, shedding it before they have symptoms. And so that means it is succeeding in its transmission before the issue of how severely sick it makes people is decided. So the evolution essentially is, is blind to how many people this is killing. Evolution is only shaping how well this virus transmits. So it might become less virulent, and it, and it might stay as virulent as it is. It might even potentially become more virulent uh, over time. Uh, I think several of the uh, the cold viruses are coronaviruses, aren't they? What what's the what's the difference right. there? They they're annoying, but they don't tend to kill people. Yeah, that's right. There's one called OC43. That's a coronavirus uh, that was discovered, I think, in the 1960s, and essentially it causes symptoms uh, const- 
substituting a common cold. Not all of our cold viruses are coronaviruses, but some of them, three or four, as I recall, by latest count, I think it's four, uh, including that one, OC43. They are simply in the same family as this coronavirus, but they are different enough that uh, they they affect humans very differently. They don't transmit probably nearly as well as this one, uh, and they don't cause um, severe symptoms in one out of ten and and death in one out of a hundred people the way this one roughly does. Mm-hmm. So you talked about a, a possible end uh, to to this particular pandemic. It end in quotes. Um, another key question that we're all wondering, as we're all kind of weary, is when. When will this kind of right. settle down? We we are weary. I'm weary too. Um, we all are weary. But um, unfortunately, COVID fatigue does not mean that the pandemic is over. When will it be over? Uh, gee, Tom, I'm, I'm I'm not enough of a prophet to be able to answer that question with any authority. But uh, you know, it may be it may be another. I suppose another year or two before we get to a point when enough people have been vaccinated or infected that uh, this begins to be marginalized and we get back to something resembling normal life. I'm not going to use the term herd immunity because I think herd immunity is very misunderstood. I go into this, go into herd immunity and sort of the overselling of the idea of herd immunity in this, this book on the virus that I've just finished. Um, and it's complicated, but um, it's, again, it's no panacea, the idea of herd immunity. It's like, as I say in the book, it's like the immunity that you have if you walk out on a golf course in the middle of a thunderstorm. The lightning uh, will probably hit a tree or the other guy, but you're not immune to that lightning. Mm. So that's the problem with, I guess, putting all our eggs in that basket. Yes, yes. But the more people who are um, immune, resistant to this virus, the more people who get vaccinated and boosted, and the more people who have recovered from a case, the the less well this virus will transmit through our communities, uh, and and it will move toward that that state where there are these occasional outbreaks among susceptible people, um, hurting some of them probably still very badly, um, but not shutting down, not overwhelming our healthcare systems and, and shutting down our economies. That's, that's when we get back to normal life. Um, and uh, I certainly hope that that happens in the next year or two. I wonder about, what if we talk about the, the social nature of this, the interconnectedness, and the fact that many people are rejecting that premise. Uh, for, you know, for many people in the United States... Uh, they're acting as if the pandemic's over. They're, they're just, you know, living their lives and, I guess, vaccinated or not, uh, not wearing masks, you know, whatever it is, they're, they're just proceeding as if things are normal. That's right. And it's um, it's dangerous. It's um, maddening to the public health people. I mean, we still have, uh, I think, is it 2,300 people a day in the U.S.? who are dying of this? Am I right on that number? Can that be right? I think so. Uh, and uh, I heard this morning on uh, on NPR that uh, the case numbers now with the Omicron variant in the U.S., uh, we've sort of hit a peak and case numbers have started to go down over the last two weeks. But uh, hospitalizations and fatalities, which lag behind case numbers, are not down yet, are still raging away. So, um, it's possible to pretend that this virus is not there, but it's not advisable. Um, not if you ever come in contact with with loved ones who have, you know, some special susceptibility, like being elderly or having compromised immune systems or secondary medical conditions. Um, it's being unfair to other people if you say, well, this just really is not a big deal. I don't care. I'm tired. I'm over COVID. So I'm just going to act as though it doesn't exist. That might be fine for you, but it won't necessarily be fine for other people. 
So uh, to, to get to this, the point where it is, settles down or the end or what, you know, whatever we want to call that, um, I think you said it either everybody will or a very high percentage of folks will have to be have exposure, right? Either vaccinated or having had COVID. Is, is that correct? Yes, yes. Uh, there's hardly any other way to imagine this thing tapering down to uh, to a, um, a sort of a serious chronic problem as as opposed to being an acute disaster that we're all living through. There there is almost no other way to imagine it unless unless you imagine that the virus is going to uh, by happenstance mutate into a form that is innocuous and as i've said that's not impossible but it's nothing to count on there's no reason to assume that 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 will happen uh, you know that's the the, the the book the first pandemic scare science fiction book from the uh um goes back to the late 1960s the andromeda strain and that's the way that ends it's a bug from outer space that comes and starts killing people. And how are we going to deal with it? With a nuclear bomb, with with other catastrophic um, interventions? And eventually, the, that novel ends with a sort of a whimper rather than a bang, because, oh, son of a gun, this bug mutated into a harmless form. And so we're not going to set off the nuclear bombs just in the nick of time. We realize that. But that's science fiction. That's not inevitably what's going to happen. I wonder, uh, this may be purely academic, but I, I'm wondering, um, you know, removing humanity, which is, which is a big remove, removing that, <laughs> yeah. removing that factor, um, uh, is it just sixes? Uh, if, if, if more people just get COVID and that's the way it uh, dies out, rather than what we'd hoped in the beginning where most people would get vaccinated? I missed a crucial word in in your question, Tom. Could you? Oh, I'm is sorry. It, is it just what? Is I'm, it just... I'm, I'm just sixes? Is it kind of even from a you know from a, oh, a point oh, of sixes? Gotcha. Yeah. Right from a point of view oh. of just getting there. Uh, again, much better to have people vaccinated because you reduce death and and other things, right? But right, but uh, well, if 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 we don't succeed in, we need to do two things in 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 order to get most of the world vaccinated we need to we need to deal with the the suspicions and the resistance of people who could be vaccinated and don't want to be we need to be respectful toward them we need to try and understand why they are resistant uh, some people have very legitimate reasons for being suspicious of western medicine um, and I'm thinking particularly of for instance African Americans um, um, going back to the Tuskegee experiments and things like that, who have been very badly used by institutional medicine. I understand why they might be suspicious. Other people are hearing things um, from strange sources and reading things on the internet that persuade them that there are all sorts of nefarious tricks built into these, these vaccines. That's less uh, easy to sympathize with, but we need to deal with that. We need to help those people get to yes on vaccines. That's one of the things we need to do. We need to do that around the world. Vaccine resistance is a phenomenon in Italy and uh, India and other places, too. It's not just a U.S. thing. It's not just sort of the uh, rugged individualism and the cowboy ethic that um, makes certain people resistant to vaccines. But the other thing we need to do is achieve vaccine equity. We need to get vaccines to the people in all those countries and countries of sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere, where the vaccine rate is very low, partly because of resistance, but even more so because of lack of availability, lack of availability of the vaccines, of the recipes for making the vaccines, of the facilities and the resources for producing the vaccines in those countries. We need to get vaccines to people around the world uh, who, um, who need them. Uh, and nobody is entirely safe until everybody is safe. So it's in our interests as well as in the interests of the people in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and uh, Namibia and Gabon. It's in everybody's interest for us to get vaccines to them and help them develop their own vaccine 
production facilities uh, because as long as the vac- as long as the virus is circulating in them, it continues to have the opportunity to evolve to throw off new variants, some of which potentially could be able to escape from the vaccines that we already have and therefore circle back and infect us another another construal of the word spillback, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Let's take a break. We're talking with uh, the writer David Quammen. Uh He's author of uh, many books, including uh, Spillover, uh, which was published in 2012. Uh, we're talk- we'll talk about Spillover, talk about Spilled Back as well. Uh, there are worries about Spilled Back into mink, and uh, there are several mink farms in Utah. Uh, we'll talk about uh, future viruses as well and all related topics. And you're welcome to join us with your question or comment by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. More following this. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you and the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University, creators of the Utah Women and Leadership podcast series. Information and episodes are available at utwomen.org. This is Gina Wicklor for Bringing More to Life. Aging adults benefit from social support, which is essential to living independently longer. Positive social experiences in late age are linked with immediate health benefits, including better immune function. Research shows that even if they don't remember, positive social interactions with persons with dementia yield more positive behavior and higher well-being, both short-term and long-term. Whether at home or in a care facility, find time to interact with an older adult, with or without dementia. Simply listen to the person express his or her thoughts, feelings, and needs, and you will both smile. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Retired and Senior Volunteer Program of Cache and Rich Counties, bolstering social support and well-being of aging adults and family caregivers. Information at sunshineterrace.org slash RSVP. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with David Quammen. He's the author of several books, including Spillover, Animal Infections, The Next Pandemic. That's published in 2012. Um, and so you can uh, find him at davidquammen.com. And uh, David Quammen, uh, uh, another book on, on COVID, right? It's coming out later this year? Oh, yes, yeah. Um, uh, it'll be titled Breathless. The Scientific Race to Defeat a Deadly Virus, coming from Simon & Schuster. Thank you for asking. Uh, I finished it in late December, and I'm very busy now doing all the fact-checking and bibliography and and, uh, fine-tuning and editing um, for the book. Um, I wrote it in the space of last year. (laughs) It's the busiest year I've ever ever had. I just uh, sat in my office here in Bozeman, and I Zoomed, interviewed 94 leading virologists and public health officials around the world. I uh, asked them a series of questions, talked to each of them for about an hour and a half, um, and, uh, and wrote this book. about it's, it's about the virus itself, its origins, evolution, and its fierce journey through the human population, and the people who study it, the scientists who study it. We're good. We'll we'll be looking for that. We'll talk a bit about uh, some of those topics as we go along here today. Of course, um, I want to talk. I want to go back to spillover. Um, so this is twenty. This is twenty twelve, and you've written. I think on your website in this case, um, uh, people ask you. You know, when this uh, report started surfacing in late twenty nineteen, were you surprised? You say I wasn't surprised. Uh, how does it feel to be prescient, you say? You say, well, I wasn't prescient. This, the science I talked to were prescient. I want to read uh, what, uh, what you got from them. This is just one paragraph here. Uh, mm-hmm. So talking to those scientists for this book, again, 2012 is when this was published. Um, they said, they told you, yes, there will be a next big one. It'll be caused by a virus. That virus will be new to humans coming out of a wild animal. What kind of animal? Very possibly a bat. What kind of virus? Very possibly an influenza virus or a coronavirus. Under what circumstances will the virus get into humans? Some situation of close disruptive contact between humans and wild animals, such as in or around a wet market in, oh, for instance, China. Uh, very prescient. Um, and uh, I guess what where I want to start with that is uh, I think, you know, governments, 
organizations have warning systems. You know, they kind of look out for viruses. Uh, still, mm-hmm. for most of us, this was a huge surprise. It was a huge surprise. And, and what was a surprise to me is how unprepared we were for it, not the fact that it was a dangerous new virus that happened to be a coronavirus. Um, the, yes, there are um, surveillance systems. There's a global uh, outbreak alert response network, GOARN. Um, that's part of, uh, it's, it's, I believe, part of the World Health Organization. Um, there are global influenza um, surveillance networks. Uh, we we had some of that, but we didn't have enough. We didn't have enough um, funding for it on the ground in places all over the world. We didn't have enough um, uh, transparency and complete connectivity of scientific knowledge. And we didn't, most importantly, we didn't have the public health and governmental leadership buy-in to respond to um, detecting a dangerous new virus quickly, forcefully, efficiently, and internationally. Uh, and that's that's been what has allowed this terrible disaster to happen. So going forward, as the saying is, um, we need to learn from this pandemic and be much better prepared, both with what they call viral discovery, which is doing research on the what dangerous viruses are out there poised to spill over from wild animals into humans, surveillance, outbreak surveillance, so that when an outbreak occurs and you've got 20 or 30 people connected, say, with a wet market in a city in China who have an atypical pneumonia, that immediately there is not just local response and an attempt to um, to contain it without admitting to the seriousness of the danger, but um, an international alarm bell that rings and um, and international cooperation and the flow of resources and uh, measures taken all over the world to deal with that so that that outbreak does not become an epidemic and the epidemic doesn't become a pandemic. Uh, I've uh, asked those, all yes, those 94 yeah. people that I've talked to uh, at the end of each interview People ranging from Tony Fauci to um, George Gao, who is director general of the China CDC, to uh, wonderful grad students in Edinburgh um, who have devised the systems that allowed us to begin tracing the variants. Nobody's ever heard of them yet. Uh, and I asked all of them, do you think this pandemic will have been bad enough that we will learn from it? And the answers have been mixed, but they lean toward people shaking their heads and saying, I wish I could say yes, but human nature being what it is, no, I don't think we will learn enough from this. The, uh, <laughs> that's a little depressing. Um, it, it is, yeah. yeah. I hope they're wrong. And, yeah. and, uh, and some of them say we have to. Um, we have to be hopeful, and we must learn from this. And, and I think that's, that's the message that we should all take. But uh, if we're to do those things that you that you outlined, uh, you, you think we could have success? Uh, early warning, paying attention to those warnings, fast international response. Yes, it's absolutely possible. Will there be further spillovers of dangerous viruses into humans? Yes. Will those cause local outbreaks, killing maybe you know a dozen or two dozen people? Yes, I'm I'm afraid so because there are so many viruses out there and there are so many humans interacting with the wild animals that carry those viruses. Is it inevitable that the next one becomes a global pandemic that kills five or six million people around the world and 800,000 in the U.S.? No, that's not inevitable. We have, uh, we have high-speed genome sequencing. We have high-speed vaccine development. We have um, antiviral development. We can do things if we trust our science, and if we allow public health to function for the good of the community, and we manage to adjudicate this tension between individual liberties and public health, then yes, we can we can cope with this this phenomenon. Mm. So uh, spillover. Uh, I wonder if you talk a little bit more about spillover. It has become famous, of course. Um, you know, uh, coronavirus. The this novel coronavirus uh, is an example. Give me some other examples of spillover. 
well, there's been a whole drumbeat of them in the last 60 years, and that's what has caused scientists to be more attuned to this phenomenon. Going back to, for instance, um, Machupo virus in Bolivia in 1961, spilling over from rodents, getting into people, causing a hemorrhagic fever disease called Bolivian hemorrhagic fever, and then Marburg virus, which is related to Ebola in 1967, uh, coming out of monkeys that were shipped up from Uganda to Marburg, Germany, for medical research, uh, the virus getting into humans and killing them. Um, Ebola, first recognized in 1976, uh, and the, the, the list goes on. In the Four Corners area, you'll remember this, uh, hantavirus, the hantavirus mm-hmm. alarm in 1993. Um, 1994, there was something called Hendra that came out of bats and got into racehorses and, and killed them and then got from the racehorses into the trainers and the veterinarians and was was a very lethal disease in them. Uh, Nipah virus, 1998, in Malaysia. The original SARS, 2003, coming out of southern China. Zika virus, uh, 2012, spread by mosquitoes, causing birth defects. Uh, MERS, excuse me, Zika was 2015, I think. MERS was 2012, another coronavirus coming out of bats, getting into camels, and then people in Saudi Arabia. So, as I as I say, this whole drumbeat of of these things, and and most of them um, did not kill a whole lot of people. SARS one in 2003 spread around the world very quickly, infected 8,000 people, and killed one in 10, 800 people. But it wasn't as transmissible as this coronavirus. It was a coronavirus, but not as transmissible as this coronavirus and not transmissible from asymptomatic people. And therefore, we were able to stop it, contain it. Um, And then came this one, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, What if you talk about spill back? This is uh, where, you know, it might have spilled over uh, from a species into humans, then humans back into perhaps a separate species. Yes, well... Some people, um, the critics of the idea that this is a natural spillover event, that this virus came from a wild animal, there are people who who want to say that this is an engineered virus or this was a, a manipulated virus that got out of the lab by, by way of a lab leak. I deal with that in my book, all those, um, those claims and those narratives. Um, we do need to know more about the origins. We need to continue researching it. But uh, I have seen no persuasive evidence for um, lab leak, uh, just narratives and circumstantial evidence. But um, assuming this comes, as most scientists do, that this comes as a virus that got into humans from a wild animal, some people say, oh, it was, it was suspiciously well adapted to humans from the beginning. Well, no. Um, it has been clear from the beginning that it is a generalist virus capable of infecting dogs, cats, um, wild large cats in zoos, lions, tigers, snow leopards in zoos, gorillas in zoos, white-tailed deer in Iowa and Michigan and Illinois are now um, carrying a lot of COVID. High percentages of them have tested positive for COVID. I mean, you know, 40%. Um, 60% in Iowa, according to one study, 60% of the white-tailed deer are positive for COVID, according to one um, so far unpublished study. And, of course, mink. Uh, It devastated the mink industry in Europe. Uh, It got into mink farms in the Netherlands and in Denmark, resulting in um, massive culls. I think 17 million mink in Denmark were culled, essentially destroyed the the mink farming for fur industry there and in Utah. Uh, And I understand that there are something like 30 mink farms in Utah. There's also some in Idaho and in Oregon. And um, this thing is um, very capable of infecting mink and spreading through mink farms because the mink are farmed at high density in very close quarters, which is unlike the way mink live in the wild. Um, and then even passing from mink 
back into humans. So that's sort of double spillback. You know, a virus comes from an animal and gets into humans and then passes into another population of animals and then passes from that population of animals after a bit of circulation and a bit of evolution passes back into humans. And that's what really scares people about the phenomenon of spillback. Is it possible, is it likely that if a virus is circulating in some other, if this virus is circulating in some other population of animals, say in mink, is it is it going to mutate? Yes, it's always going to mutate. Is it going to evolve into some new form? Yes. Is that form then going to spill back into humans and be worse still, a new variant? It's possible. It's not necessarily likely, but it is possible. And that's that's why people take this phenomenon quite seriously. I'm, uh, I'm quoting from this uh, New York Times article that I made reference to earlier, That just a brief passage here. Uh, some scientists suspect, for example, that before erupting in humankind, Omicron may have brewed in a non-human animal as a result of a spillback. I don't know what your view of that is. Uh, I have uh, spoken with scientists who, um, who think that that's possible, too. Um, essentially, I've heard the, the scientists, the evolutionary virologists that I respect most, talk about the origins of Omicron as having three, having three possible scenarios where it came from. One is that, yes, maybe it was circulating in wild animals and acquired all these mutations, 50-some mutations, 30 of which are in the spike protein, which is how it grabs onto human cells. And so maybe it, and, and it's very different. Omicron is very different from the alpha, beta, and gamma variants. It's completely different. It, it, it diverged from them um, very early on. So where, and where did it diverge and how did it evolve? Maybe in a population of wild animals or maybe in one or more immunocompromised people, maybe in somebody who got a case of long COVID because he or she was immunocompromised and couldn't clear the virus. And so for months, the virus lived uh, and replicated and mutated in that one person and then came out of that one person with these 50 mutations. Um, That is scenario number two. And scenario number three is that maybe this was uh, just a, a strain of the virus that was circulating somewhere through humans, a number of different humans, acquiring all these mutations, but that that particular group of humans weren't being sampled and their samples weren't being sequenced. So we didn't see all of this m- mutation that was going on. So one of those three, uh, but the idea that it's that it came from an animal population such as mink is a serious possibility that, that the, the experts are entertaining, yes. What can we do? Is there anything we can do to prevent future variations? Uh, or is that just going to happen? It's going to happen, and it's going to happen in proportion to how many people and animals on the planet are infected with this virus. The more people and animals are infected, the more viral reproductions going on, the more mutations going on, the more opportunities for the virus to change and evolve and adapt better into new variants. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a probabilities game. It's a numbers game. We just have to get um, control of this virus. We have to. We have to. Um, we have to reduce it to rarity, in order to stop it from continuing to evolve potentially in dangerous ways. And the way we reduce it to rarity, as I've said, I don't think we can ever eradicate it. But the way we reduce it to rarity is first of all, we we get humans protected from it, either by vaccination or simply because so many people have gotten infected. Um, But we don't know how long um, the acquired immunity from recovering from an infection will last. So that's another question mark. And we need to deal with the the fact of it circulating in wild animal populations, circulating in the white-tailed deer of Iowa, circulating on mink farms. This is a problem that's not unique to COVID-19 the fact that it's circulating in mink farms. Anywhere where you have 
um, large-scale, high-density animal husbandry, not just for fur but also for meat, you have uh, a situation in which viruses potentially dangerous to humans can can circulate, can mutate, and can evolve. For instance, Tom, we've got 33, last, last count, 33 billion chickens on this planet. Anyway, in the, in the vicinity of 30 billion chickens on this planet, most of those being farmed in high-density, large-scale poultry farms. Excellent, excellent places for the circulation of influenza viruses, in particular high-pathogenicity avian influenzas, such as H5N1, which is very lethal in humans but not transmissible in humans, that virus could evolve toward a form that is very transmissible in humans because we've got so many chickens that we're farming in high-density operations. Uh, we need to deal with that. We need to think about that. Um, we need to uh, uh, we need to cope with it with very, very careful surveillance and hygiene requirements and moving away from high-density, large-scale animal husbandry. If you just joined us, we're talking with David Quammen. Um, we're talking about uh, the coronavirus. We're talking about the pandemic, spillover, spillback, and uh, other topics. And uh, let's take a break. Uh, so, David Quammen, when we come back, I want to have you talk about this. I'll just tease this right now. This is uh, recently you wrote this on your website. Uh, this is David Quammen. SARS-CoV-2 is not going away, and it will continue to evolve. Our challenge as its currently preferred host is to evolve with it or slightly ahead of it in order to cope. I want to talk a bit about that when we come back following this. Support for 2022 legislative programming on Utah Public Radio comes from our members and the USU Institute for Disability Research, Policy, and Practice, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, and education. Information at idrpp.usu.edu. It's time for Utah Public Radio's annual Art Mug Contest, and we're asking for your entries now through February 18th. You can use any artistic medium for your design. Just show us what you love about UPR, our programming, or our station's home here in Utah. You'll all get to vote on your favorite design, and the winner will be printed on this year's mug, available during our spring member drive. For more details, go to upr.org, and to submit, just send your designs to me, katie.swain at usu.edu, by February 18th. An investigation into the disappearance of 43 Mexican students exposes a massive government cover-up, and officials lash out. Mexico is an important country, and you mean to treat us with respect. Investigators no longer feel safe. I think you need to leave, like, for a long time. Part two of After Ayotzinapa on the next Reveal. Monday at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with the writer David Quammen. He's based in Bozeman. Uh, he's written many books, um, writes for many publications. The new book coming out later this year will be all about uh, the pandemic and uh, and COVID. And uh, that'll be coming out. Uh, David Quammen, what, summer, fall, sometime? October. 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 As scheduled now. Yep. Yes. Very good. We'll look forward to that. Uh, by the way, you can find David Quammen at davidquammen.com. And uh, this is where I found this, uh, writing, uh, I think, in your blog, David Quammen. just want to quote this again and uh, have you talk about this. You say, SARS-CoV-2 is not going away. It will continue to evolve. Our challenge as its currently preferred host, you had parenthetically, though, mink and tigers and white-tailed deer and gorillas and other creatures are also susceptible. Our challenge is to evolve with it or slightly ahead of it in order to cope. So how do we evolve with it or slightly ahead of it? Mm. Well, I meant that mainly in sort of a metaphorical, metaphorical sense of evolve, and, that, and by that I mean uh, cultural evolution. Uh, and by cultural evolution, in this case, what I mean is um, our behavior, our responses, our science, our development of vaccines, our development of antiviral drugs, our ability to work together and create the systems of surveillance and response that I was talking about 
earlier. That's the sort of evolving that I mainly had in mind. But I suppose it also evokes in people the question of whether we are going to uh, evolve in a biological sense to deal with this virus, uh, to cope with it, to adapt to it. Uh, now, individual people um, respond to it, and they acquire immunity, uh, either through vaccination or through being exposed to it and, and surviving a case, and that gives them both uh, antibodies in their blood and also uh, cellular um, response, T-cells that, that create antibodies. Um, and uh, and that's a sort of individual adaptation. Whether we as a human population would evolve to be more resistant to this is not impossible, but it's not what I'm suggesting that we count on or wait for, because that's something that would take a long, long time. For instance, humans in Africa, humans native to Africa over uh, thousands of years, seem to have evolved a certain resistance to malaria, a certain mutation that endowed them with more resistance to malaria. and that is, was the sickle cell trait, uh, which, if you have just one dose of it from one of your parents, helps you resist malaria. But if you have two doses of it, then you get the disease sickle cell anemia. Um, but one, it was an evolutionary response. That's why it's there. Uh, as long as there is only one dose from one parent, it does help deal with the particular microbe. It's not a virus, but it's a the protozoan that causes malaria. So that's that's the way in which uh, the human population can adapt over thousands of years to um, to a, a disease pathogen. How how likely is another big one, uh, another uh, maybe spillover, a virus, and uh, and a pandemic? I would say another spillover is. Um, very, very likely, it's almost a, a certainty that there will be future spillovers of viruses. You know, there, as I said, there, there are just so many viruses that live in non-human animals. I've seen one estimate um, that there might be something like 1.7 million viruses living just in mammals and birds. And of those, um, a rough guess was that maybe 600,000 to 800,000 might have the capacity to infect humans. So there's just a world of viruses out there. seems virtually inevitable as we continue to interact with wild animals, as we, as our human population continues to grow and to consume and to be interconnected, it's inevitable that humans will be exposed to some of those viruses carried by other animals. And that an occasional case will occur in which a virus gets into humans and uh, causes illness and can transmit is it inevitable that those outbreaks will turn into pandemics or that one of those outbreaks will turn into a, a pandemic as bad as this one or worse? No, I don't think it's inevitable. I guess that makes me an optimist. I think it's possible. It's highly possible that it could happen, that, for instance, avian flu could evolve to be not only highly uh, virulent in humans, but transmissible from human to human, and start an outbreak that could lead to an epidemic, that could lead to a pandemic. That could be horrible. It could be much worse than this because the case fatality rate could be much higher than the rate of this virus, and yet the transmissibility might be just as high. So there are nightmare possibilities, but they're not inevitabilities in my view and and from what I gather from from the experts on this. There are things that we can do to detect and control and contain the inevitable future dangerous spillovers. Um, We talked about this a little bit earlier in the program, but uh, this would be a good time to reiterate. What are some of the top things we can do? How, How can we be prepared? I say, uh, you know, I could talk about those public health measures and the international cooperation and surveillance, discovery, and response. Again, that's very important, but something more basic than that, I think. Uh, we need respect for science. We need support for science. We need understanding of what science is. So how do we get to that? Well, science communicators like me are trying to do that in our little, in our own little ways. But... Um, 
teaching science in the schools. I think the most important thing we can do is to to teach science to our children, to start early, you know, third, fourth, fifth grade, whatever, teaching natural history uh, to students in in grades at that level. Uh, you don't have to call it ecology. You don't have to call it evolution. But teaching how the world works, how different creatures are interconnected, um, the consequences of interconnectivity, it can be fascinating. It can be fun. Um, to learn about those things. I know it's being done in, in certain places, uh, but we need more of it. We need more good science training in our, um, on our grade schools and our high schools. And we also need education that better helps kids be critical thinkers in this age in which they are just inundated with information from the Internet, um, much of which is fallacious or misleading. We need to help them learn how to look at a source that is making a factual, pres- uh, presumptively factual claim and make judgments. Is it logical? Is it supported by evidence? Where? What are the sources for this source? Where did this person get this idea that you know, such and such is happening. Uh, vaccines are causing autism or whatever. Um, it's a fallacious claim, but what is it based on? W- w- where's the science? Um, we need kids to start to be able to think like that. And so, uh, in my view, um, the way we conduct our education is the single most important thing that we can do to deal with this particular problem and uh, also probably a lot of other problems. So it's a big topic, and uh, of course you've you got a book, you've been working on it. It's coming out in October. It'll be called Breathless, right? So you said. Um, yes. Is there uh, is there something that's uh, you know that's just really fascinating to you that I I haven't asked you about or that you'd like to share with us uh, now? Here we just have about five minutes left in the program. Yeah. Well, um, we've been talking about spillover and spillback, and this is just one little thing. Um, I made contact with a scientist named Roger Frutos uh, at an institute in Montpellier, France, who uh, has published on this idea of where viruses come from and how they get into humans. And he has um, he has been um, sort of oh, critical is the wrong word, but he has wanted to go beyond the spillover model that. Um, an outbreak begins because one human comes in contact with one animal and one virus gets into that human and then spreads. He says we should think about it as much more likely a, a, a far more complicated process that he calls it the circulation model. And he points out that viruses do not have to be, um, have to be um, unique to one particular species of animal. They do not have to constrain themselves to living and reproducing in one particular animal until they spill over into the next. Many of these viruses are probably multi-host viruses that are constantly bouncing from one, not just from one individual animal in the wild to another, but from one species to another, and bouncing into humans and experimenting with humans as a host. And that there is this constant, uh, other scientists have called this viral chatter. There's this constant process in which viruses are spilling over from mink into, oh, mink into other mustelids, other mammals, beavers, uh, wolverines, whatever, mink into humans, from bats into uh, raccoon dogs, bats into pangolins, bats into porcupines, bats into civets in southern China, for instance, and then occasionally into humans and back, that it's going on constantly and it's undetected. And then there comes a time when two accidents happen. The first accident is a mutation that makes that virus more capable not only of getting into humans, but transmitting from human to human. And then the second accident is what he calls the social circumstance, and that is once it gets into humans, it is able to move from human to human because of some social circumstance that gives it the opportunity, such as getting into a crowded, wet market where people are going down these little corridors and shopping for um, for wild animals for food and for seafood and for domestic meat 
and they're sneezing and coughing on one another, and they're living in a in a big city, and that big city is well connected by railroads to other big cities in old, for instance, central China, and connected by airports to the rest of the world. So that's the Roger Frutos circulation model of what's going on. And that was relatively new to me. Some of those ideas were familiar, but but Frutos has begun publishing recently on this, and I touched on it in my book. Um, and it seems to me um, so far unproven, but um, very interesting and rather persuasive. Yeah, fascinating. Again, the book is Breathless. It's all about the pandemic, COVID, and related topics, and it's coming out in October. Um, so I think you uh, you put some other, at least another project on hold when your publisher came and said, hey, we need a COVID book. Um, <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you be returning to after this uh, comes out? Well, I have two things to return to. I've got a book coming from National Geographic Books uh, uh, next year, which is a collection of pieces that I wrote over the last 20 years from um, for National Geographic magazine, and it's all about, uh, this book will be titled The Heartbeat of the Wild, and it's dispatches from landscapes of, uh, of wonder, peril, and hope. And It's about conservation efforts around the world in wild and remote places, things that can be done, things that work, things that are being attempted. But the book that I was working on for Simon & Schuster before this pandemic began is a book on cancer as an evolutionary phenomenon. And I was in Tasmania investigating um, a phenomenon of genuinely contagious cancer that has evolved among Tasmanian devils, and it's been killing off the entire uh, population of, of this wonderful species that lives only on the island of Tasmania, Australia's southernmost island. I was there in until March early March of 2020, uh, researching that, I came back and uh, COVID had begun, and my publisher said, would you please set that book aside and, and give us a book on, on this new coronavirus? So I'll go back to that when the, these other projects are done. We'll look forward to those, and of course, Breathless coming out in October. Uh, David Quammen has been with us, and uh, you can find him at davidquammen.com. Uh, thanks so much. Appreciate you uh, taking the time. You're welcome, Tom. It, it's always, as I say, um, a pleasure and uh, uh, and fascinating to talk with you. Thank you so much, and uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. Hello, listeners. I'm Shireen Gorbani, Salt Lake County Councilwoman. Join us for both sides of the aisle. This is a weekly debate over politics, policy, and big issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices on the right, in the center, and on the left. That's me. Both Sides of the Isle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing the residents of this state. We prove that you can still put Republicans and Democrats in a small room and have meaningful dialogue. Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we sail the waters of the South Pacific to visit the far-flung islands of Oceania, including Hawaii, Australia, and Papua New Guinea. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howarth. Pack your bags and join us for the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.